0: Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Our text this morning be verses 12 through 17. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Um, Let us pray once again. Father, we ask now uh, by the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would... Um, Grant me the grace to communicate your truth and give us the ears to hear, to understand, to sanctify your people by way of your glorious truth we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, It is a delight for me to bring the Word of God to you again this morning together. And as we continue our series through 2 Corinthians, it's important for us to remember um, that Paul is writing, no doubt, to the church in Corinth, but he's also dealing with opponents there who were claiming superiority to Paul false apostles that Paul sarcastically refers to in chapters 11 and 12 as super apostles. who preach another Jesus and a different gospel. Claiming for themselves greater glory and ministry in contrast to the lesser glory of Paul's ministry. His accusers say that, that his sufferings and his hardship are evidence that he is an inferior apostle. Pointing to their strength, their celebrity, their rhetorical skills as grounds for their superiority. While his opponents look so successful, Paul um, always seems to have trouble. Time and time again, where they appear so super spiritual, Paul looks dull and incredibly unimpressive. As he's always in affliction, constantly facing difficulty, limping from trouble to trouble, from one problem to the next, really a pathetic, weak, suffering figure is the Apostle Paul his enemies were saying, this guy isn't blessed of God. He's cursed by God. Making Second Corinthians um, the most transparent of all Paul's epistles um, regarding his view of ministry. Expressed in this letter, unlike any other, Paul basically says, life is ministry and ministry is life. And that's how we ought to view life, beloved. Life is ministry for the Christian. Ministry is life. Now, while there's great satisfaction and joy in seeing people grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, as we read Paul, uh, we see a synopsis of how he experienced life. And he describes it in this epistle as follows. He describes life and ministry as being afflicted, as being burdened, as to be beyond strength, to be and have an anguish of heart, to be tearful, to be sorrowful. Um, It was to be beside ourselves. Um, It was having no rest for our spirits. It was asking you, please make room for us in your hearts. And it was conflicts without and fears within. So in summary, his description of the Christian life and ministry is is laden with weakness. Weakness. So while he preaches a Christ who has greater glory than Moses, that we'll see next week in chapter 3, his ministry is rooted in misery. Weak. His entire life and apostolic office demonstrates weakness. Something we don't like to hear in our day because weakness is mocked by the strong. And yet, Christianity itself is based in weakness. I mean, God Himself achieved salvation for us by sending His Son in the weakness of human flesh to be humiliated, to be crucified on a Roman cross, the ultimate sign of weakness. Sorry. (laughs) So, having been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Jesus commissioned His disciples to go and make disciples through means that appear as weak this gathering to the world appears as weak. We're not called to conquer nations. We're we're, we're not called to declare jihad against the infidels as the Muslims do. But through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and I promise, says the Lord, I will be with you until the end of the age. A means of grace that appears as weak to the world. Now, in verses 12 through 17, we come to Paul's discussion of the triumph of Christ and the fragrance of the gospel. Now, verse 14 will be our locus of focus this morning, beloved, and through verse 17, which is one of the most concise, epitomizing expressions of Paul's understanding of Christian ministry. So let's begin. In verse 12, we we learn from Paul that when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Now, um, Troas um, is a port city in northwest Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and served um, as a launching point Um, from which ships would cross the Aegean Sea and and go up into Greece and in Macedonia. Notice he says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. In other words, an evangelistic opportunity provided by the Lord. Now Paul knew about open doors, amen? Acts chapter 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 4, um, in Revelation Um, Chapter 3 and verse 8, it's the Lord himself who says to the church in Philadelphia, I have opened a door for you for which no one can shut. If he opens it, no one can shut it. However, an open door does not mean that there are not adversaries. Enemies of the gospel. Now, Paul does what he always did. Um, typically, when the door was open, he'd go to the, lowest, the, the local uh, Jewish synagogue and preach the gospel to the Jews, and then he'd go and preach to Gentiles, and for those who believed, he'd plant a church and move on. Now, Paul also informs the Corinthians that he had expected to meet Titus in Troas. Notice, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. Okay, now remember, beloved, wolves had come into Corinth trying to assassinate Paul's character to undermine his credibility and authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tried to discredit his teaching and replace it with their own false doctrine and this devastated Paul. Tore him up. So after he writes 1 Corinthians to that church that was an absolute mess, He made what is referred to as his painful visit, chapter 2 and verse 1. We've discussed this over the weeks. His painful visit. He returned back to Ephesus and he wrote what is known as his severe letter or his stern letter, and it was delivered by Titus. So, Paul, he's waiting and wanting to know how the Corinthians reacted to his letter. So, he's waiting on Titus. They didn't have email. Okay, there are no text messages, you know. You you had to wait. And he, he wanted to know whether these people had repented and once again embraced him as God's true apostle. And this caused great emotional pain to the man. Now in 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 7, you don't have to turn there, but Paul recounts with what great joy he had when once Titus made it to Macedonia. But until then, you know, that this door that was opened wide to preach the gospel, he, he boards a ship in Troas. He goes into Macedonia, nearly 300 miles north of Corinth, with conflicts outside and fears within. So yet, despite his worry about The whereabouts of Titus, considering all of his trials and all of his troubles, in verse 14, he breaks out all of the sudden in praise to God, which again, verse 14, is the epitome of how Paul viewed ministry. In the midst of all the trials, in the midst of all the troubles, in the midst of all his suffering, a sign of weakness. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, this verse you often see on plaques, refrigerator magnets, um, online graphics that um, serve as a source of inspiration that usually um, include a picture of a herald's trumpet. Have you seen them? You, maybe you have at home. This verse. The idea being that that God leads His people in a triumphant parade as His victorious heralds. That we're in this parade and we're saying, yes, we triumph in Christ. But that is not what is going on here. Now, verse 13 to verse 14, at first glance, it sounds like a, a, tra- a strange transition from utter weakness to great victory. But he's actually talking about weakness all the way through. Weakness. He's describing a cross-bearing life and ministry. Now, the first thing we need to figure out to understand this passage is who us is. Now, odd as it may sound, us in this text is not us, okay? Us is not Christians in general. It's not even the Corinthian Christians that he's referring to. And in fact, uh, for a a significant portion of 2 Corinthians, um, including these verses this morning, Paul uses the first person plural to speak of himself as an apostle. In other words, us is the apostle Paul. He's not talking directly about you and me. Now, his words certainly have application for us, and we'll get to that. But he's primarily speaking of himself, defending his apostleship. Paul says... Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. (laughs) Thanks be to God who always leads us, me and apostle, in triumph in Christ. Okay, so far, so good. In the back, so far, so good. But here's the real issue. Okay, what does it mean, always leads us in triumph in Christ? Now, the way that the New American Standard has it um, almost sounds opposite of what Paul is saying to us in this verse. Okay, now there's been a great deal of confusion about this passage in the past, mostly because of the way the translators of the King James Version rendered the Greek participle in this passage to read as follows. Now, thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph in Christ, Okay, evoking the idea that Christians always have a triumphant life, um, giving rise to forms of triumphalism. They always lead a triumphant life. However, the King James translation of this passage has been shown by scholarly exegetes to be linguistically impossible, which is why the ESV translates it a bit better, reading, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. But even that is a bit ambiguous, the NIV, but thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. That's even better. Now, the word that Paul uses, 3 imbuo, is the word. It's used only twice in the New Testament. Here. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where on the cross Christ defeated his enemies, where we read, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. One Greek word. That refers to the Roman practice of a conquering general. The Roman practice of a conquering general leading the conquered. Okay, again, leading the conquered in a shameful procession that leads to public execution. Are you with me? Not leads us in triumph in Christ, but leads us in shameful procession in Christ. Now, John Kelvin, one of my heroes of the faith, whom we all love, amended this text and had great influence on how it was translated when the King James Version came out in 1611 reading, God always causes us to triumph in Christ. Calvin says this in his commentary. I took this directly out of his commentary this week. If you take the verb literally, Calvin says, it will mean he who triumphs over us. What Paul must mean, Paul must mean something different from the common meaning of this present phrase in Latin. Question, what does Latin have to do with the original, right? I hate to say that sarcastically to the great theologian, but nevertheless, he goes on to say, for captives are said to be triumphed over when by way of disgrace, they are bound with chains and dragged before the chariot of the conqueror. End of quote. You all with me? When you read Calvin's comments on 2.14, he draws an illustration of pastors and ministers who are lieutenants riding alongside King Jesus, celebrating and participating in his victorious triumph, rather than a picture that the, the, the Paul, I think, is drawing here uh, of, of being paraded around as a conquered enemy. Again, a conquered Enemy. So when we look seriously at the meaning of the word and the direct object, Paul is saying that he is being led by the conquering general, Christ, as one who has been conquered, and that unto death. Death. In the first century, the verb meant to be conquered, not participate in victory with the conqueror, <laughs> okay? So w- when a Roman army conquered an enemy, they celebrated in Rome with what was known as the, the triumphal procession, triumphal procession. Those conquered would be paraded through the streets in weakness, key word of the day, Weakness before the world. I mean, it was a huge, spectacular parade. The conquering general, obviously, would be honored. The plunder that was taken from the conquered would be displayed in the procession, in this parade. They would have baskets filled with gold, silver. They'd have works of art that was plundered from the army that they had conquered. Parading through the streets. These were well-organized, planned events. They would even um, erect platforms, like little mini stands for the people um, throughout the streets. And within the parade, they had musicians, they had dancers, um, flower petals would be thrown out upon the street as they waited for the conquering general. There'd be pagan priests who would chant, you know, swinging their um, censers of burning incense. So all of those images you can find in books, in the victory arches of ancient Rome. You've probably seen the Arch of Titus when he um, sacked and destroyed the temple um, in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Um, they, they, They took from the temple Um, the the golden candlestick and the table of showbread and they marched it through the streets in the triumphal procession. That's the idea. So the victorious general would stand in a chariot and it was pulled by four horses and I read also that sometimes by two elephants (laughs) pulled through the streets. In his right hand would be an ivory scepter with a Roman eagle at the top. Victory. In his face, Painted red like the pagan god Jupiter. And then the final key element of the triumphal procession was the conquered enemies who had been taken prisoners. After the battle, they were marched through the streets in shameful procession. Led oftentimes to their death. Led sometimes to the Colosseum. Conquered soldiers who were once strong, powerful, and proud now led in shackles for thousands of onlookers for all to see as a testimony of the power of the one who overcame and conquered them. So, Paul is not saying that he's the triumphant one. I mean, he's not even saying he's a soldier of the triumphant one. That's not what he's getting at. He's a conquered slave being led to death, and the one who leads him is God. God is the conquering general. And so when Paul says, thanks be to God, what he means is thanks be to God because in Christ he always leads me as his conquered slave unto death. And he does it for all to see. That's what that verse means. Scott Haithman, who teaches New Testament at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, did his Ph.D. dissertation analyzing just 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 3 and verse 3. Dr. Hafeman says this, quote, Read against the backdrop of the triumphal procession, Paul's metaphor in 2.14 may be decoded as follows. As the enemy of God's people... God had conquered Paul at his conversion call on the road to Damascus and was now leading him as a slave of Christ, which by the way is Paul's favorite term for himself, slave of Christ, to death in Christ in order that Paul might display or reveal the majesty, power, glory of God, his conqueror, end of quote. So, Paul puts himself here in the place of a conquered enemy. I mean, he was, he was Saul of Tarsus, an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the church of Christ until Christ captured him on the road that day and made him a slave of righteousness and now a servant of the gospel. Belonging now, body and soul, to his captor, the Lord Jesus Christ, being marched to his death. Gives you a new perspective on ministry, doesn't it? Jesus said of Paul in Acts 9, when Paul was arrested by Jesus himself, He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must triumph for me, suffer <laughs> for my name's sake. You know, unlike the, the super apostles in their health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of the first century. Health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is nothing new. It was born there. So Paul, um, having been conquered by Christ, um, looks like a man um, bearing a cross on his way to be crucified. He always leads us in triumphal procession. So in Christ, he leads us in triumphal procession. Look at verse 14b. And manifest through us, manifest through us, those in the procession, we're in the back, we're the slaves, through us, that is me as an apostle, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So in connection with preaching Christ crucified, Paul can speak of the spread of the gospel as a sweet, pleasing aroma. See, Paul's life consisted of making known the death of Christ. When I came to you, I declared to know nothing but but what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Don't mess with that message. And yet, carried as it were, he carried that sentence of death in himself. That was his view. That was part of his ministry called as he was to suffer for Christ. Now in Colossians 1 he talks about filling up the fullness of the sufferings of Christ. Paul's point quite simply a God-led ministry is characterized by the God spread gospel. Don't mess with the message, like the super apostles did. Now, the irony for Paul was that part of the suffering that this brother endured was inflicted by the ones he was called to serve. Again, I'm not just talking about the Jews who wanted him dead everywhere he went, or Gentiles who were put out of business with regard to their idol-making factories because people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ and no longer would purchase idols. But on the very people of God, the church of Jesus Christ who caused so much pain and affliction for the man. What an irony with regard to suffering. Bitten. This man was bitten time and time again by the sheep that he was called to lead and feed. And quite simply, Kelvin says elsewhere, some people, as a minister, they just won't like you. It's that simple. That was the first four years of ministry here at Pacific Hope. There was no triumph about it with regard to triumphalism. A lot of affliction for four years. That was nothing, though, compared to what some pastors I know have to go through because they got messed up leadership who are always messing with them. Thank God we don't have that. I love our leaders here and their support. It's a side note. The only way to serve the Lord that's safe and, and trouble-free um, usually involves a lack of people because that's where all the trouble comes from is people. <laughs> Newsflash. It's oftentimes a thankless mission. It's a thankless endeavor. Look, neither my call nor your call, however you may serve within the church of Jesus Christ, whatever ministry it is, whether it's evangelizing family, friends, neighbors, if you do it for the praises of men, if you do it, if your motivation is to receive pats on the back or to hear thank you, your motives are skewed. Jesus spoke about slaves, didn't he? He said to his disciples, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he's come in from the field, Come, sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourself to do so. Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. Does he, not th- he does not thank the slave because he did the things that were commanded him, does he? So you too, when you do all things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Should we thank one another? I hope so. I hope so. I thank all the guys who spent all the time doing this, and I'm thankful for them. The point is, um, don't allow your ministry and the motivation for doing ministry um, as a means to receive pats on the back. I've heard people say, I'm quitting ministry, and I ask why. I just don't feel appreciated. That's their answer. Join the club, man. Come on. Join Paul's club. I don't feel appreciated. Okay, so here we go. Paul shifts from the language here of a Roman triumphal entry to the metaphor of a Jewish temple sacrifice. See the connection? Verse 15, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life of life. So, because Jesus has offered the final once-for-all sacrifice for sin, God is very pleased when the gospel's preached. When the whole counsel of God is declared, a faithful Christian ministry is one through which Christ is proclaimed. If they don't, run for the hills, man. Get out. Now, to some, Paul is well aware of the fact that his ministry will be the smell of death. People will despise it as they despise death, yet he also knows that others will find the very same message is a fragrance from life to life. Two-sided effect. See, the gospel does not change. It remains the same, but people either love it or they hate it. And the ones who hate it are the ones to whom it is veiled. They're blinded. And it's veiled to those who are what? We get to chapter 4, perishing. To those who are perishing, it's veiled. It's a stench. It stinks. It's aroma of death from death, from death to death. So in the eyes of the world... Christianity, the Christian life, is a stench of death marked by weakness. This is ridiculous that you all would sit here um, in the heat like this to hear some guy talk from the Bible. You must be out of your minds, is how the world sees it. In chapter 1, Paul said this, we have received the sentence of what? Death. But our Father does this, he goes on to say, to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. From life to life. So to the world, Christianity looks like defeat. Just as our Lord came in the weakness of human flesh, was nailed to a Roman cross, the conquering king, and through his death comes everlasting life because he conquered sin and death. See, to the world, this is all there is. To the world, it's all about bank accounts and square footage, that's it. That's life under the sun, by the way, in our study of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the S-U-N. If you're stuck here and you, you don't have sight that goes above the sun to the one who rules and reigns forever, it is vanity, it is vapor, and it is meaningless. So store up all you can now. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It makes no sense to the world. The gospel stinks like death. It's the aroma of from death to death. And the same message to those who are being saved, an aroma of life. To life, And let me say this, you and I have no control over the aroma. No control over the aroma. Whether you as a messenger are an aroma of life or death, that's God's decision. Even in terms of ministry and raising our own children, to some of these children, I hope not. But this is perhaps now or is going to become the stench of death, a foul odor, the gospel. I pray every day that you all don't. But you don't have control, parents, with regard to the aroma. The truth is the truth. To some, and I hope to all young people, that it's an aroma of life to life. Verse 16b, Okay, now in context to all that, and who is adequate for these things? Most of us immediately answer, no one. Wrong. It's often suggested that the implied answer is no one. As though Paul's answer implies a humble response with regard to the responsibility. Others suppose the answer is no one because he has self-sufficiency in view, but there's no hint of that either. Again, Haifman, quote, although such views may seem natural to us, Paul's implied answer to the question, um, who is sufficient for these things, is better understood as I am. In being led to death as the aroma of Christ. He goes on to say, Paul is confident that God is making himself known through his what? Weakness. Suffering for the gospel. Who's adequate for these things? Paul says, I am. (laughs) Verse 17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So while his point, again, is primarily about apostles, it also certainly applies beyond apostles because as in Paul's day, the same is true for our culture. And that is that most popular preachers are usually those, not always, but usually those who give people what they want, not what they need. They mess with the message because they think they can change the aroma. Peddlers, meddlers. Luther said this, God's word cannot be without God's people. And similarly, God's people cannot be without God's word. And I'll add to that, those who are not God's people do not want God's word. If you're here and you spurn, it's hard for me to believe you'd be here and not want to hear the word, but perhaps some young people, just let me warn you now, if you spurn under the word of God, I pray that you come to your senses because perhaps you're not his. That's big boy football talk. We don't mess with the message because I have no control over the aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the church today, places called church, at least in name, they're overflowing with false teachers. Overflowing. You have cowardly pastors hawking bad theology all over the place. Pulpits have been turned into entertainment platforms. And positions ordained by God for men have been surrendered to women. People are out of their minds. They think they have control over the aroma of Christ crucified. Paul was sincere in message, method, and motive. All the way through, he realized that Christ's glory was at stake, first and foremost, with regard to his gospel. And notice, he also realized that God's eye was on him as he proclaimed that message. Verse 17, look at it. We speak in Christ in the sight of God. I fear for these guys who go changing the message, meaning those those who are truly in Christ. Remember chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians and the last day? Those ministers who stand firmly on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, on that day, the method, uh, the motivations of the methods of their ministry will be revealed. And some, we learn, will suffer what? Loss. Their ministries will be revealed whether they were um, on the basis of Christ and Him crucified, and they will be revealed as either gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, and stubble, burned up. Yet they will be saved, but they'll smell like they just ran out of a burning building. So don't mess with the message because you have no control over the aroma, is the message, is the point. So declaring the knowledge of Christ, notice, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma of death to death, to the other aroma from life to life. And again, we do not control the aroma. God takes care of the results, and he does not consult with us as to how it turns out. Amen? I wish he would. I wish he would consult, (laughs) or at least inform me. You know, all those things you've been praying about for so long, it's all going to turn out just perfect. And it will according to his sovereignty. I'm talking about my pleasures in particular. All joking aside, God is not bound to consult his servants, those following in procession at the back. The conquered were servants. So we declare his message, whether people like it or not. Amen? So we, with, with imagery here taken from a victory parade, a conqueror who leads captives in his procession, Paul portrays himself as a, a captured slave for God. That's the picture. He's not blowing a trumpet at the front of the thing, saying, hey, I'm a herald with the conqueror. He says, no, I'm the one who's been conquered by the king. God God has conquered the apostle and he is pleased. God is pleased with his work of proclaiming the gospel. Paul describes this work as an aroma that is pleasing to those who are being saved. And it is foul. It is a stench to those who are perishing. And all the while, in the midst of it all, there are false apostles peddling another gospel for profit. That's life in the ministry, says the Apostle Paul. But thanks be to God, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession, notice, in Christ and only in Christ. Only in Christ. That ultimately leads to resurrection, life. That's our certainty. Life unto life, life unto life, everlasting life. Not the second death, death unto death. No one in the world is led by God apart from Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ. If you are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you can talk about God all you want. Well, to me, God is like this or God is like that. Wake up. You can convince yourself that you're okay with God, and if you're not in Christ, you're not. Okay with God. You're not okay with the big man upstairs, as they say. You're in deep, deep trouble. The only ones who are a part of this are those who are in Christ. So Paul's point with regard to the aroma of Christ is that His sacrificial death is the only sacrifice, the only aroma that arises to the heavens and is the only sacrifice that satisfies God's holy justice. That's why you must be in Christ to be saved from His holy justice. The glorious good news of the gospel. So now, with that glorious aroma, uh, the proclamation goes out, we convey to all, all sinners are now welcome to God, only in Christ. And if that's you, come on to the Lord. Come on to me, he says, and I will give you life. All All you who labor and are heavy laden. Because if you think that your aroma of good works good deeds arise to god is pleasing that's self righteousness and that's a stench in his nostrils come to christ and the aroma that arises is the finished work of his son on your behalf and he receives you forgives you of all your sins he removes them as far as the east is from the west and then you can boldly enter in to the throne room of grace through the finished work of jesus christ And as Paul puts it in the fifth chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The aroma and only aroma that God accepts So the question is, are you in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ alone? Is He the Lord, your Lord? Repent of your false belief, your unbelief, and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, and you too shall be saved. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let me read this again, and we'll close in prayer. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, let's put it Christ's triumphal procession as a slave, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Amen. God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the glorious aroma of Jesus Christ and him crucified on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to know that as we share the message, we do not control the aroma. So may we not ever mess with the message, but remain steadfast as your servant, the Apostle Paul, who appeared as weak, preached the only message that is strong and that can save, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray for his sake. Amen.